Welcome to the African Turf Academy podcast series. My name is Andrew McKenna. I look forward to taking you through the journey, talking to various role players in the golf and turf industry. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks for giving us your time in your, in your busy schedule. Yeah, so busy at the moment. <laughs> like we all are. So. Right, listen, Anil, I'm just going to do some formalities quickly. Uh, my name's Andrew McKenna. I'm the founder of the African Turf Academy. I started a series in lockdown just to showcase all the opportunities in the, in the vast golf industry and all the uh, leading role players. I'm trying to be getting them on. And Neil is, uh, I class him as the king of rules in South Africa. South Africa, he, he's, he's too modest. He has some competition. I know that. He's got the... Uh, some good competition out there, but he's, uh, he's the go-to guy with rules in South Africa. Um, African Turf Academy, we have a, a, a full-time academy at Silver Lakes in Pretoria, and we now have a new online platform, so if you want to check it out, please do so. But, uh, but this show is not about me, it's about Neil. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, right, we're going to kick off with some simple questions, Neil. Uh, okay, cool. Cricket or rugby? Uh, rugby. Okay. Augusta or St. Andrews? Yeah, I've played the St. Andrews a few times, so for now I'd have to say Augusta. Um, I'd like to get out there and play. But, um, have, you, have you been to Augusta yet? I haven't been there yet, no. But I, I love St. Andrews. It's, it's just a fantastic place. But for now, I'd play Augusta, definitely. Okay. And uh, just last one for now, Jack or Tiger? No, Jack. <laughs> I'm not a Tiger fan at all, so. <laughs> okay, uh, Robert McIntyre. We, we get some questions from the audience as we go, but uh, Robert McIntyre, one of our students, is asking Tiger or Rory? Uh, uh, Rory. <laughs> Again, how's it, Bob? How are you? <laughs> Long time no see. He, Bob used to come out to South Africa and play our tournament, so good to have yeah. you on. It's it's not that it's not that Robert McIntyre. Robert McIntyre's on, uh, on, on our program, but I know uh, I know that I know sorry. the one you're talking. He's a Scottish he's Scottish amateur, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. And he, uh, he turned praise. He's done really well. You know. Um, oh, uh, oh, oh, yeah. It's, it's the lefty, yeah. isn't it? Lefty, um, yeah. Yeah, no, he's done he's done phenomenally well actually. He was rookie of the year last year, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he, was quite, he was quite a chubby guy when he came out to South Africa, but. Um, Oh, now he's yeah he's playing well and he's he's leaned up a bit so good to see yeah absolutely all right Neil so uh, give us your story um, you followed a bit of a similar journey to me in the beginning but tell us about it so basically you're talking about uh, how I got into golf well I think you know growing up in South Africa we play all kinds of sports so I played provincial baseball when I was really young um, we had a tennis court at home played tennis we used to go hit balls with my dad at the driving range. And golf really wasn't my main sport when I, when, I, um, when I was young. I played everything else, cricket, squash, rug, a little bit of rugby at school, not much. Um, and, um, you know, a bit of baseball, tennis, so really everything. And I only really took up golf when I got kicked out of varsity first year. I went to first year varsity here in Joburg. And all I wanted to do was go play golf. I was about a seven handicap at the time, so I wasn't any good when I was 18. Um, and then uh, I got kicked out of varsity and my dad said, why don't you uh, give golf a try? You've got talent at sports and, and everybody that I played with seemed to think that I, you know, I played well and I could, you know, my ball striking was good. So, so he said, 
give six months out and see how it goes, and, and then we'll take it from there. Okay. So, yeah, I, I practiced for two, three months, and I was a scratch handicap. My first tournament, I actually played at Crown Mines here in Johannesburg. Um, Hugh Bain won the tournament on about 11 under par, but I finished about ninth. That was my first ever golf tournament. Okay. Uh, Michael was playing uh, yeah. the main South African golf anyway. Yeah, uh, I, I, I've had him on. Michael was on last week. Yeah, so maybe he sees this somewhere along the line. Yeah, so uh, Nick Henning was still playing. <laughs> so, yeah, so, um, yeah, so I, play, I played my first golf tournament when I was just before I turned 21. Um, and then I had to do national service in South Africa. So I did a year of national service up in Petersburg, which is now Polokwane, where mm -hmm. a person uh, comes from. Mm -hmm. And I used to sometimes go to practice with him. He, he didn't really have much to say. I used to say hello to him, and, and we'd chip and putt to, to, together a little bit. Um, I don't think he would even remember who I was because I was in the, in the Air Force at the time. I used to get to practice just in the afternoons after, after my national service duty. Mm -hmm. And then I... I finished the Air Force and uh, came out of the Air Force after my year and I spent the next uh, two years playing golf full-time um, before turning pro in 1994. So okay. I moved into, into professional golf. Yeah. And then, then, you, then you became a Sunshine Tour player? Yeah, then I was a Sunshine Tour player. I played, uh, went to tour school once. I never had to go back, which was nice. Um, I kept my card every year. I got exempt one or two years in the seven years that I played, which really wasn't much. I was, you know, between 50th and 65th every year. Um, didn't, you know, I had good tournaments, but never really consistent enough. And the money wasn't great. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you could finish 14 under par for a tournament and make 4,000 Rand, you know. So you, your caddy made more money than you did that week. So it was, that was hard. It was a hard tour to be on. Um, I tried my luck at, um, in Canada one year, so I traveled across to Canada one year. Um, missed my first uh, tour card by a few shots, but <laughs> ended up having the option to pre-qualify and stick around for a while. So our pre the second tournament I pre-qualified for was the BC Tal in Vancouver, and I shot 11 under par there. Uh, won the, won the, well, I finished second or third in the preview, and then got in the tournament, shot 71, 66, 66, 69. And I finished uh, tie third in the end. Um, I made a double bogey on on 15, and uh, I was playing with Ian Hutchings from South Africa, who ended up winning that tournament. So that okay. made me enough money to to cover my expenses during that three month trip. Okay. Apart from that, I really just played Sunshine Tour for seven years until 2005. Okay, okay. and then you you uh, decided to finish playing and then enter the coaching world. Is that right? No. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I gave up in 2001. My goal was to, to try to get to Europe within five years. I got yeah. better every single year, so I decided to give it another two years. And then I picked up an injury in my last year. I got a rotator cuff injury. Up to, going up to Zimbabwe, I lifted the shutter on the airplane and pulled the rotator cuff. Um, and so for the next three, four months, I didn't play great. I ran out of money, <laughs> decided to pack it in. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, 31 years old, you've uh, only played golf, really. Luckily, mm -hmm. I studied uh, while I was on tour. I actually studied a BCom. So yeah. I got a BCom in industrial psychology and business management while I was playing on tour. I qualified in 98 with that. Um, so okay. I had something to fall back on, but still, um, to try to find a job at 31 that was going to pay the bills. So I was kind of stuck. I looked around for jobs in South Africa. I didn't really want to do the golf course. Um, 
manager role or a, or a <coughs> pro at a golf course. I'd helped out at the shop at Ram Park when I was learning golf every now and then with Kirby Lacrunji uh, when he was short of staff. And sitting in a shop all day was not my thing. <laughs> mm. So I didn't want to go that route. And mm -hmm. I ended up, uh, I always uh, did some, I used to um, run youth groups and teach Sunday school at the church. So um, I always wanted to be involved in children. So I just, uh, eventually I ended up going off to South Korea. I went to Seoul for three years. I taught English for a year. Um, and then got involved in an international school for two years, taught math, science, and computers to high school children in, in Seoul, um, in Gangnam, <laughs> Gangnam style. <laughs> and, then, uh, <laughs> and then in, in, and then in 2000, middle of 2004, I came back um, to South Africa to teach here in Midrand. I taught at a, a school in Midrand for two years. Um, loved teaching school oh, yeah, but, okay. um, but I, the money just was really hard to get by on yeah, so my yeah. next step was to to i was offered a position to to run a school in china as a yeah, headmaster in the same system that i'd worked on in korea so i went off yeah, to china yeah. for a while i was only i was supposed to be there for three years i needed three or four months there yeah. um it was a bit of a mess and i came back to south africa and decided i wanted to get back into golf so um, luckily, the position at SAGA at the time, South African Golf Association, at the time came available. This was good timing after I'd waited about 11, 12 months to find anything. So in that interim play period, I was reaching the rules of amateur status by teaching a little bit of golf. Um, and, uh, <coughs> and, um, so you got yeah. your amateur status back while you were in... I got my amateur status back, yeah, while I was in Korea. Um, and then I came okay. back and I played a little bit provincial golf 2007. But before that, while I was teaching, I was trying to make some extra money by, by giving some golf lessons to the kids at the school. So I did okay. that. <laughs> uh, All right. So how did, how did you get into the, rule, the rules part of the game, which is probably what you're known for <laughs> now, right? Say again? How, how did you end up getting into the rules of golf? Because it's, that's kind of where you're at now, right? Yeah. So my role at the moment is manager golf uh, operations, rules and training. Um, and so I, I teach the, the RNA level two and level one seminar, seminars here in South Africa. And we get them, uh, people get an RNA certificate for that. Um, and then the level three, obviously, which they, the RNA call the tournament administrator referee school, uh, the RNA need to come out and do those. So that we kind of try to keep the numbers up of the people that are qualified in South Africa so that um, we can, um, so that, that when they do come out, we have enough people to attend that school. But how I got involved in the rules training was really, I mean, when I, I applied for the job at SAGA as the assistant executive director, got the job and the deal was on the table that if I didn't get my rule certificates when the RNA was coming out in that February, then I didn't have the job. So I started in the September, uh, RNA came out in February that year and did two seminars, or we called them rule schools back then. Um, and I did the one in Benoni and I passed my exam. So, and then just really from there, the experience is running golf tournaments um, on behalf of SAGA and now Golf RSA. Okay. So, All right, so when, uh, I mean, a lot of the audience here are, are uh, or will be, uh, even after we finish live, our potential greenkeepers, current greenkeepers, golf course managers around the world, superintendents, all sorts of levels. Um, and the rules, uh, 
play a big part in course setup and uh, you know how they're managing their golf course. What do you? Uh, what mistakes do you see? Some guys doing when they're setting up a golf course from a rules perspective. Sure. So I mean, it's hard for me to really comment on this in that that when I go to a golf tournament, running golf tournament, I do the course setup. So and then I go and see what is out there, um, and then obviously I move things around according to what I want. Um, and an example of that is uh, in the new rules, we have these uh, penalty areas, and we can mark anything as a penalty area. So what I have seen is, like, a, uh, and I'm going to use a example like Clettenberg Bay last year, they've made all of their bush area penalty areas. And I understand that it helps to speed up play at the club level, but when I'm coming in to run a golf tournament, I want the course to play as per how it was designed. And if you're adding penalty areas to what should be bush, you're obviously making a quite a big difference um, to, the, to the playability of the golf course. It's, the fear factor goes out of the game. So, so that's, that's obviously, I don't know if that's committee decision or greenkeeping decision, but that, that's a, a biggie in the new rules. Um, and then the, the couple of little things that I, I see is, um, I mean, when I go to a golf tournament, my, the, the one thing we've got to remove is the plastic liners that, that uh, are put in holes. Those are not according to the rules of golf because the rules say that the, the cup has to be an inch below the surface. And when you put the plastic liner in, there's no, there's no inch below the surface. I know it protects the hole, uh, but for tournament golf, uh, that, that's a no-no. Um, so that is one of the, the first things we'll look at when we're, we're at a golf tournament. Um, sometimes we miss it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, one of the things that I... Uh, uh, I notice is the uh, confusion about pin placings, um, yeah. where they are allowed to be placed in relation to the edge of the green, where they're allowed to be placed in relation to the um, uh, slopes, where they, and also where they're measured from. Where is the front of the green? Uh, maybe you can uh, give us some elaboration yeah. on that. Yeah, so from the, from the RNA, when they do the, the tournament administrators and referee school, we do a little section on course setup, um, and that's pretty much uh, standard. So basically, I mean, it's kind of hard to do at, at, at coastal level or coastal golf courses where you've got a lot of wind. But basically, you want to try and work out where you would be approaching that hole, mostly for, so from the middle of the fairway where you'd be approaching that green. So if you can work out that area, and obviously if it was downwind versus down versus into the wind, that spot would change. You might be able to cut the dog leg versus not. So maybe you want to have a look at your holes. What's the prevailing one? Where would you be playing most often approaching that green? And then you draw a straight line. From and that's the to, sorry, that's to identify the front of the green, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So then you would draw a straight line from that spot to the back middle part of the green. So if you put a, a spot at the back middle part of the green, you draw, draw a straight line from that point straight to the back middle part of the green. And when you first hit the part of the green, um, wh whether that part of the green might be to your right or to your left behind a bunker, um, that, is yeah. your, that is your entry point. So you, you might hit the green only 10 paces further on, but the green is perpendicular. The green is starting where you, where, where you hit that entry point. And then you would okay. pace your paces on left and uh, from there. So if the pin was back right corner and there was a little finger to the back right corner, by the time you got over a bunker that was on that right side of the green, you would have already done maybe 15 or 18 paces. 
And then the pin is only five paces on the green, but from the front of the green, it's 23 paces. So, okay. so that's, that's the norm. So you want how many on from the front entry part of the green, and then how many from the right side of the green. I have had situations when I've done a pin placement and I had 25 on, five from the left. <coughs> and when I've gone to check the pin placement the next day, the greenkeeper has gone 25 on from the middle of the green, uh, from, the, from the entry point into the green, 25 on to the green, and five from the middle of the green to the left. And so we've ended up with a pin on the side of a slope um, and not anywhere near where you had put your spot or where you'd wanted the pin to be. So yeah, it's, it's a very confusing part of course setup that is for me. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that you get used to and there is a set way to do it, I guess. But yeah, 25 on and then you measure from the left side of the green. And so the interesting part about, about course setup is, is you might have a pin that from the middle of the fairway looks like it's on the left-hand side of the green. But because there's a little finger on that area, the pin is on the right side of that area of the green. And understand the information that you're trying to give the player is where not to miss the green. So mm. even though the pin looks like it's on the left-hand side of the green, the closest part of that area of the green where there's trouble or a bunker is to the right. So that pin would still be a 25 on five from the right in that section of mm. the green. So yeah, we've, got a, we've got a hole here at Silver Lakes. So I know you know Silver Lakes. It's uh, the fifth hole. It's got two fairways. Mm. And uh, the green is like a clover. Yeah. So you've got, you've got all this information that gets confusing and uh, there's probably no 100% right answer for it, is there? Yeah, it's very, very difficult. So actually interesting, European tour, uh, our referee at the Daniel um, at Leopard Creek in, in um, early December, I think last year. And obviously the 16th holiday, they've changed the tee boxes. So we now have a back right pin and a, and a, a back right tee box and a back, and a back left tee box. And the angle is... 45 degrees difference, or maybe not quite, maybe 30 degrees difference. So in the yardage book, it actually has a right tee box marking and a right tee box entry into the green on the, in the yardage book on the left. Mm -hmm. um, we don't go that detail, but, but yeah, so that's interesting. Like from, for that hole, if you're approaching from the one fairway or the other, other fairway, it completely changes how many paces on your pin is, you know? Mm -hmm. And so you, totally. you might need to have a double um double box for your for your pin placement left fairway it's 15 on right fairway it's only 10 on you know yeah absolutely uh, but at yeah. club level we can get away with that okay and what about the uh, placing of uh, the hole so the hole gets placed a certain amount of distance from the edge of the green from physically and from a slope yeah i think uh, i mean i've asked the rna this question and if you speak to somebody like bruce young who I work with, and that's refereed at the British Open. I think he's done 14, 15 of them. He says there is no legal pin. They put the pin on the green. It's, it is on the green, it's on the green. Obviously, you don't want to be less than maybe two meters or t from the side, but he said at times it can be two meters from the side. But the, the key is to keep it on a, on a flattish area where you're not got too much slope around the hole. Um, and that if you, if you do hit a ball three meters beyond the hole, it's not going to roll back down a hill and then past the hole. Um, and the hard part, of, I guess, for a greenkeeper is that, that your course can completely change. Um, and when it's soft and slow, a pin placement might be fine. If it's near the base of a slope or just up the top of a slope, that would be fine. But as soon as the course gets harder and firmer, then those pin placements 
are not um, appropriate. And I have, mm. I think often you do get that is that a, a greenkeeper said, but we've had this pin placement a thousand times and it's fine. Yeah, but the greens weren't running at 13 and you hadn't, you had, 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 had rain and now you haven't mm. had any rain for, for four or five weeks. Mm. So all of a sudden, mm. it's faster, harder, firmer running. All of a sudden, that pin placement is not uh, a valid or a appropriate pin placement. So taking yeah. into consideration those kind of things. So but definitely the faster the, your greens get and the firmer, and we pretty much all know this, the less pin placements you have on each green because the mm. slopes getting increased so but, uh, but a, a guideline would be to say three meters from the edge of a green and making sure the ball can stop next to the hole i think the usga on their website they say the, the ball must be able to stop next to the hole at a decent pace i think that's their wording or something like that yeah i think that uh, i mean i had a situation at silver lakes actually when we ran one of the senior events there um and on the the far four up the hill no, on the, um no, <laughs> it was on the back nine, like uh, third last hole, the fourth last hole, the little path up the hill. And then yeah, I yeah. put the placement there and then I got the greenkeeper out to have a look because I was a bit worried about it. And, and the main thing was for, for him when we checked it is that, that the ball's not speeding up when it's getting to the hole. That it's, yeah. uh, so if it's speeding up around the hole, then you're in trouble. If it can slow down when it gets near the hole, then it's fine. And obviously, if the greens are fast, then it's going to be, and the slopes are severe, then it's going to be speeding up. And if it's slow, then it's still going to be slowing down. So it might be a good placement when it's slower, but not when it's faster. Yeah. Um, but so it's such an important part of the uh, art of being a good, good golf course manager is to understand all these things, right? Because yeah. so often we talk about how the grass grows and how the machines run and the, how they cut the grass and... Uh, fertilizers and chemicals but we don't talk about the playability of a golf course and that's uh, ultimately what it's all about yeah you've done everything right and then you mess it up by putting a wrong pin and nobody notices all the good things you've done they will only remember the two bad pins that you put on the golf course for the day yeah. so one Absolutely. of the things we do i mean it's it obviously changes and you want to double check it and and um and so when you do, we do a course check in the morning and I know green keepers go, but uh, you're not trusting me. You don't think I'm going to do a good job. It's not a case of that. It's like if I've got something wrong um, or, or something is wrong on the golf course, I get it in the neck. The green keeper doesn't, at my tournaments, the green keeper doesn't get into in, in any trouble um, or, or a mouthful. I'm going to get it. So I do a course check every morning an hour before. Um, we start an hour before first tee off time. The same as what the um, Sunshine Tour would do, and we just double check your pins. I mean, I might even have, I might have done the pin place, and so I'll hop off the cart and just have a look, maybe roll a couple of balls and go, no, I'm just not, it's just a little dicey, this pin. I'm just going to maybe just stay away from it and get the greenkeeper out and just move it one more meter down the hill, you know, mm. um, rather be safe than sorry. So, um, because you, I mean, what, for, for the sake of one meter, it's, it just saves you uh, a whole lot of hassles, yeah. you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So you, you've got a. Uh, obviously, you had your playing career. You have got your uh, rules. You but you've converted to becoming a tournament referee. What What is the difference? Uh, what are the major differences between being a knowledgeable rules guy and being a tournament referee? Yeah, I think so. I mean, when you've done a level two or a level three rules seminar, you understand maybe the rules or where to find the rules in the rule book. 
but it's that practical knowledge of how to apply that when you go on the golf course. How do you deal with a rule situation? Not saying that I'm perfect. Um, and how to and how to solve a situ uh, sort out a situation. So you have to take those rules and then be able to apply them. And the only way you really do that is getting on the golf course and making mistakes or being in situations where you have to think outside the box. If somebody asks you a question and you're going, I don't know the answer, and I'm standing in the middle of a fairway and the guy is asking me for a ruling um, and how you deal with that situation. <coughs> so when, they, when you do do a rule seminar, they teach you how fast to work your way around the old decision rule so you can find that answer quickly. But there are other options, phoning a friend, um, checking your audience, standing, sometimes standing outside of the situation and just looking back and going, okay, wait, what is he actually asking? Because sometimes you're in that situation, the player's pushing you for an answer and you, you shout out the first thing that comes to your mind and then you realize you're actually dealing with the wrong part of that, of that ruling. So, um, so, yeah, so the experience is the key. And once you've done a rules seminar and you know your way around a rule book, it's really important to try to get out on a golf course and just see what can go wrong. And the problem with getting experience as a rules official is that um, you, you can be on a golf course for 12 hours and do three rules, you know? So you don't get experience very quickly. It's not like there's a thousand rules and once you've done two tournaments, you're gonna have this experience, you know? Um, but that but being said, yeah. yeah. But the rules seminar th throw things at you, don't they? Yeah, we try at the level three. We so we do a practical in on all the seminars, which really helps you to see it visually. But the level three, the the tars, we actually put people in the situation. We ask them questions, and we we almost try and trick them in that in them mm. giving a ruling, so that they they realize what that pressure feels like, and and how a ruling can go awry pretty quickly. So, okay, before we before we go into high profile stuff that you've dealt with, what what is the uh, what is the trickiest rule in the rule seminars? The in the in the theor theoretical side, I've heard some funky ones in my life, but what's what's your trickiest rule? Sure, I can't really think of what's the bad, but, but at, at the rule seminar, almost every single time we do a rule seminar, when we talk about taking an unplayable in the bunker, so a player hit his ball into the lip of the bunker in the sand, and then he has to take unplayable in the bunker, invariably the person will ask me, what happens if it's not plugged in the lip of the bunker? Well, in the sand, in the bunker, what happens is it's plugged in the lip of the bunker. And now the player has to drop the ball, um, back in play, but he's not allowed to drop it in the bunker because his ball's not lying in the bunker and it's embedded in the, in the general area. And then everybody always asks that question. And that becomes a, I mean, if there's no option in that situation because you have to mark the position of the ball and then drop the ball within one club length relief area, not near the hole. Um, and that's, there is no part of that, there's no relief area that isn't in the bunker, which means the player doesn't, have an option to drop the ball back in play. So you'd have to take on table and go back on the line. So he has to take a penalty, uh, penalty relief in that situation. And so that was, uh, that's always a, a question that always gets asked in the rules seminar. Um, for me, the hardest part of the rules is, and especially in the new rules, is, is this, the putting green and the flagstick and what happens in the ball that's moving on the green hits a flagstick or hits a player and then to, and there's accidental and there's purposely hitting it. So in the new rules, I find that 
quite confusing because I never know what the, <laughs> the answer is. Also, you don't deal with those rules every single time you do a tournament. Almost never. I've never had to deal with that, that rule in a mm. tournament. So, um, so it's, for me, I find that tricky personally. Um, I always have to open my book for that. Um, mm. rather because I'm bound to get it wrong <laughs> it just doesn't sit clear in my head you know and the, the rule book is like a, a, a book of law isn't it you've got to you, some rules cross over to the other rule and you've got to mix two rules together to get the answer yeah especially when you start dealing with a ball that's hit into a bushy area and then the guy plays a provisional and then he finds the original but he, it's unplayable and then he wants to go and play the provisional and then you have to explain to the guy but you found the ball so the provisional is off is is not in play anymore now you have to deal with the lost ball rule and <coughs> the guy can't understand why because and he hit one a good one down the middle of the fairway he doesn't want to go back down back to the tee and have to hit another one off the tee right okay. so yeah sometimes those rules are you know the lost ball the searching for a ball provisional ball and they're all rolling to one Mm. So one of, one of the, uh, the, the, the guests we had on yesterday, Chris Haspel, who uh, it was the course uh, manager and um, he built Castle Stewart. I don't know if you played Castle Stewart. You, I don't think I, you have yet. But, but he, he was, he, they tried to make sure that golfers find their ball. So they built a golf course that was beautiful and uh, full of character, but you don't lose your ball so people can have fun. And I think that's an important aspect to it when you're setting up a golf course, that you don't make it too brutal, but you have to, the game becomes so complicated that you have to bring complicated rules like this and then you, you maybe don't enjoy the playability of the game anymore. 100%. You know, I think that that's one of the, the fear factors of people coming into golf is that the, golf, the game is so hard and there were so many rules. So I think with the rewrite of the rules, they, they made that simpler to understand the rules because all the rules are, are really more similar than they used to be uh, when you used to have three different situations covering the, the same kind of ruling. So mm. they made that more simple. And then we try to speed up play a little bit or the RNA and USGA have. And then, yeah, making golf courses more playable, like the penalty area option now, where you mm. can mark a bushy area as a penalty area. Um, mm. It makes it easier in some ways. Um, and, and you don't have to, if you've got a really narrow hole with bush left and right, um, where you don't have a guy has to try to get a ball in play. If you make a penalty area, he hits one, goes down there, goes two club lengths and continue to play the hole. Um, but obviously tournament golf, you want to play it according to how it was designed. So. Mm. Okay, so a bit of a tip for the golf course managers and the students, don't try and set your golf up, course up so difficult that it doesn't become fun and becomes too complex. Um, all right, so Neville Van Olden, who I think you know from Leopard Creek, he's just left Leopard Creek, he's just saying, how's it? Neil. Send, send, send my regards to, send my regards to Neil. Okay, okay so let's touch on it. While we while we here, so with Leopard Creek last year at the Daniel, uh, we, yeah. we were finishing in the dark, so Neville was there, and we we're finishing in the dark because we're taking five and a half hours to play. And the golf course was fantastic condition. Well done, Neil <laughs> and Leopard Creek. But but the greens were running at thirteen and a half, almost fourteen, the rock hard, um, the rough was up, um, and so the players had to take extra care to hit their ways to, to, um, to when you're around the hole putting, so it just slows down play. So like you're saying, if you make it too hard, not only is it not fun for the players, but it's also, it also slows down your rounds at your golf course. So that makes it even less fun and you're getting less people onto your golf course mm -hmm. because it's taking five and a half hours to play. 
So the easier you make it for your club golfers, obviously the better, or the more user-friendly, rather, let's say. Exactly. One of, one of the gentlemen that's watching, Howard Swan, is a friend of, of mine now. He, um, he's a golf course architect from the UK, um, and he, he's a big believer in making the golf courses uh, player-friendly, uh, and he argues that some architects tend to design courses too difficult for some reason. Yeah. It's supposed to be a fun, a game that is fun and enjoyable. Absolutely no one likes looking for a golf ball. It's true. I don't mind looking for you. I don't mind looking for your golf ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. So let's, you, you've had some, you, you've, you've done Leopard Creek, but I know you've done some other big tournaments. Um, what is your, what is your biggest tournament you've refereed at? Yeah. So I've done the SA Open obviously most, most years because SAGA or Golf Forest, we own the SA Open and I've done Joburg Opens, etc. But my biggest tournament by far, I did US Open at Chinookock Hills in uh, two years ago. So what was that, 2018? Um, mm. That was just incredible, you know. That's the one that Kupka won, right? Kupka won, yeah. Okay. And uh, I, know, I know you, I, I obviously know some of these stories, but uh, just for, for fun, uh, tell us about the situation with Dustin Johnson. Okay, so... So yeah, so um, so I understand this. So as a first time, my first ever major as a referee, um, the only thing you don't want to do is be on TV. <laughs> Despite what everyone thinks, it's the only thing I wanted, didn't want to be. So I was on duty the first hole on the sixth hole, which, uh, first day, sixth hole at Chinnacock Hills. And I knew uh, Tiger Woods was playing with Dustin Johnson and Justin Thomas. And I could see the fourth hole goes kind of up the hill and then the fifth hole's a pop-up that sweeps around back to this side. And then they play my hole, the sixth hole. It's a little dog leg with a kind of a, like a fescue kind of area that kind of stops you at the run out. And there's a bit of a waste area on the right. So tricky little hole and then a pond 80 meters short of the green. <coughs> Excuse me, I don't have COVID. I have this slight, slight <laughs> asthma cough. So anyway, so I'm sitting, uh, my duty point was halfway up the fairway. As, as glamorous as it sounds to referee at the US Open, you get a little, little uh, camping chair, which you fold out and you put it in a bag and you walk out to your hole and you put it on the side of the fairway with a cap on and you sit out there for your duty time might be six or eight hours. Um, and that's it. That's where you sit all day. So I was on duty halfway up the fairway and all I did was I saw this group coming and I was like, when these guys are going through for the day, I'm fine. Then I can. Then you can give me a ruling. But I'll be. But this is the group that I don't want to. I don't want to give a ruling to. I don't. I'm never this lucky. Um, so, so you see them go up four, um, and the crowds were obviously Tigers playing. They're huge. Um, <coughs> they go up five. They come down six, and uh, and DJ hits his ball left, and it comes rolling into the fescue about. 50, 60 meters from me, and I hop off my deck chair because I've done nothing all day, so I need to go do something. <coughs> we start looking for the ball. The spotter saw the ball running into an area, and so um, <coughs> so we start looking for the ball. Eventually, DJ, Tiger, Justin Thomas, Rich Beam, Curtis Strange, cameraman, everybody, we looking for the ball. Interesting thing was that um, uh, DJ came into the situation, asked the spotter where did the ball run in, the spotter pointed the direction of where the ball was and DJ and his caddy kind of moved over to the side, went nowhere near that area to look for the ball because if they caused the ball to move in the old rules, they would have been penalized. So 
there were so many people looking for the ball that they were bound to find it. So, you know, you're in the situation now. No, I'm already nervous. I've got a red cap on and a white USGA shirt and blue pants. And uh, you and you're on TV ball. because I remember I was watching and uh, there you were. <coughs> I start my clock to work out the ball search. And I get to about two minutes, 30 seconds. I've got a radio on and the people in the room say, has anybody got a time on the ball search? Somebody else says two minutes, 37. I said, yeah, that's exactly what I've got it at. And it wasn't 10 seconds later. And Rich Beam says, I think I found your ball. So um, then he was commentating. So he goes, I wanted to run away at this point. <laughs> and I was standing there watching. And, and so I just watched what happened. DJ went over there, marked the position of the ball, picked it up, said, yep, it's mine. And then next words out of his mouth made me go cold. He's like, can I get a rules official, please? <laughs> and I'm like standing 15 meters away with a red cap on. There's no way you couldn't, you, I could run away. <laughs> so I said, yeah, I'm here. How can I help you? And he said to me, um, so what do I do? If he's found my ball um, and he stood on it. So I said, well, I mean, and the old rules are slightly different. So I explained to him what the rule was. Um, it, but if we know the exact position we need to replace the ball, if we didn't know the exact position we needed to drop the ball, but first we have to determine whether the ball has moved or not. Um, yeah. and, and the rule was pretty clear. So that you have, to be you have to be certain that it moved in order to, because if you're not sure, then obviously the ball, you're going to play it from the, the, where it is. Um, and uh, so then DJ said to me, yeah, but it must have moved because <laughs> because um, the guy stood on it, you know. And I knew in my head I have to ask all these questions to Rich Beam in front of all these cameras that were going on. Tiger's standing there. Justin Thomas is kind of there. The caddies are there. Curtis Strange is there, you know. And unfortunately, we know all these things. <laughs> and I know that five billion people are watching. <laughs> and, uh, I wasn't interested in making a mistake, but I knew I had to ask questions like, all right, so when you st did you stand on it? Did you kick it? Do you think you nipped it with your toe? Do you think it moved position or didn't you? Uh, how sure are you? And I was not going there, not in front of all that on my first day at the US Open. So I went on the radio and I called for a rover who's the head referee. And luckily he was 30 meters away. He walked into the situation. He didn't ask a single question. He said to DJ, yeah, you can just drop it on top. We mar they marked the position. He dropped it within a club length and he played the ball from on top of the grass. So I was a bit uh, confused by that. But anyway, luckily, I didn't have to deal with that situation. Um, and then um, I asked the next day, um, how come those questions weren't asked? Because I teach the rules of golf, and I teach people that they need to ask these questions. And the, and the guy from the PJ said, listen, on the PJ Tour, if somebody causes a ball to, to move in a, or stands on a ball in a ball search, we determine that it has moved and we just deal with it straight away. It just saves them the time of having to find out all the information. So I wasn't aware of that, that, uh, that, um, that uh, modus operandi that they go through. So luckily I did pass it on to somebody else, but it was the most nerve wracking thing of my life. And, um, but anyway, luckily I bailed on it. <laughs> but it, but, but it, it comes back down to some of the other things that you uh, see flying around, whether you're playing rules, it's about sticking to the basics, isn't it? If you follow the basics, even under the extreme pressure, you'll get through it, right? Yeah, sure. But, you know, you're on the radio and, and you're also saying things. But when your mind is... So the hard part about the rules of golf is that there's set terminology. So on the radio, before I was asked to go into that situation, I actually said something over the radio, which I got completely 
in golf terminology is kind of all wrong. I can't remember what it was, but I literally said, does he have to recreate the lie or not? Which is not what I was actually thinking, but it was what I was trying to get across. And then I was called to the rule. So um, that was also probably why I was just called the rover to get out of get out of mm. uh, jail free. <laughs> <laughs> that okay. was, it was an incredible experience from a from a green peeping perspective. Um, and I, I know there were I met one or two guys that were South African that were helping there. Uh, yeah, yeah. I could hear yeah, them talking us. while I was walking to my home. There was two two of our students were working that tournament. Yeah, so just, I saw that. Just, I think he's yeah. watching. Justin Harrison came on here a minute ago. I don't know if he's still on, but he was he was he was he worked in a couple of years. Yeah, I was no, walking to my hall and I heard him talking and I was like, where are you from? And then he told me he was helping. I don't know which guy it was, but uh, so we chatted quick. But um, I mean, walking the course, I got there on the, on the Monday or Tuesday morning, got my accreditation and I just walked around the golf course for two days before we had our rules uh, meeting. The, the manicuring of that golf course is just incredible. I don't think you can understand that from a, even from a Leopard, Leopard Creek. It's a major and what they do to get ready for that. They had the mesh in the middle of the fairways where all the balls would run down into the, into the hollows. There was mesh there for the practice round. There wasn't a piece of GUR anywhere on that golf course. Um, golf, the, the, the rough was incredible. The fairways were great, but if you rolled this much off the fairway into the rough, you were in this thick grass, and, you, and the greens were rock, rock hard. Uh, just incredible the manicuring and what they put into the golf course um, mm. to get it ready for an open for a major. So mm. and, I think that was you... for me the most incredible thing. No? And are you gonna are you gonna get asked again, or is that ruling of yours with Dustin Rinder for you? No, I was supposed to go to Wingfoot now, so I was going this year again. Look, I, I didn't get asked, so let's clarify. Golf RSA got asked, and because of yeah. my role at the moment, um, I was uh, so I was. Put, put forward to represent Golf RSA. And this but Wingfoot's year, happening, right? Wingfoot's been told it's happening without crowds. It's going to October, yeah. So, so I think that I, I yeah. can't see that I'll go um, now, but, but it would have been good to do another one. But mm. uh, Sunacock, it's great, you know. So, mm. um, look, the, the job, the actual job is rather boring. I did five rulings in the four days. Um, I bailed on one, so I really did four. I did one for Sergio, one for Oliver Fisher. Couple of little things, guys hit it up against the out of bounds fence, which has got mesh, and he asked if he can get relief. So really, you know, actual dropping a ball out of out of a position. I think we did. I did three. Mm. Uh, okay, we we we're obviously when uh, when we're talking about somebody who's as passionate about golf as you are, time flies. Uh, but we're going to need to get through a few more questions. Um, you're, the new rules. Um, mm. What it, obviously we can talk for two hours on this. We've only got about ten minutes left. Um, what do you uh, enjoy about the new rules? What don't you enjoy about them? Do you think they're improvements? Do you think they've gone? Give, give us a little overview. Okay, so I think that um, I think in general the rules are much better. I think it's a lot simpler to understand. And I always talk about that if you took an embedded ball in the old rules, or a ball of lying on the wrong putting green, or a ball um, in a on a cart path, or in a ground and repair situation, in the old rules you had to deal with those three situations differently. In the new rules, we treat them all the same. We've got a reference point and one club in the relief area, and it's full relief. Um, whereas the old rules, you used to, you get, a, you get nearest point for an embedded ball, only for live the ball from a putting green, full relief from an abnormal course condition situation. So I think that that is a lot more, more simple to understand. Um, 
I think the penalties that we get now are, are less um, uh, with regards to double hitting, hitting yourself with a ball, accidentally hitting your caddy. And I think those all make sense to golfers. There was no point in me double hitting a ball and then getting a penalty for hitting it a second time uh, when the ball's gone over my head backwards. You know, I've had no benefit <laughs> from that. So, so obviously it's a little tricky in that you've got accidental movement now. So obviously if I hit the ball, hits a tree, comes back, and I swat it with my hand, that's not accidental. So, so, so it's a little, that's a slight, slight little change. But I think, you know, that and, um, and the flag stick um, is all interesting in it, and it's helped a little bit. I do think that the, obviously with any change, you're not sure how it's going to pan out as you go through those changes. And if you go into an RNA website and you see the clarifications they've released on the rules in the last year, the rules obviously aren't in their books perfect and you didn't realize how it was gonna pan out. So for example, the flag stick, I don't, the whole point of the flag stick staying in the hole was to speed up play. I don't think people realized or the USJ or the RNA realized where we would sit, where you would have one player leaving it in the hole and one player removing it, one keeping it in for 20, 20 meter putts, removing it for three foot putts. So I don't believe that that has really sped up the game. Um, mm. which was, uh, and you didn't know that until it was uh, practical. But I do think that obviously there are clarifications around the dropping on the back of the line there's certain little changes around the hole. Uh, I don't know if you, you're aware that we changed, well, the rule around the hole and the putting a plate at the bottom of the hole. Now you, they have to sink the hole at least four inches below the surface. But now, and you're not allowed to have anything attached to the flagstick in the old rules, but now um, they're allowing for a plate to go on the bottom of the flagstick so that when you pull the flagstick out um, and the ball is in the hole, the, hole, the ball will come out the hole, like a practice putting green flag stick. You know, you've got that little plate at the bottom. Oh, okay. And so is, that that is, for, is that for now? Is that because of the virus? Or? No, well, that's for now, but it also was a rule change in January uh, or a clarification. So because people were putting their hands in the hole without pulling the flag stick out and ruining the hole. So now with those, with those plates at the bottom, they're obviously the same circumstance as the hole. So that was a slight change. So lots of little clarifications before we get to the, the next version, which, um, which was always a norm every four years to slightly amend things. But mostly I think that the rule changes are good. The dropping rule, I know it's awkward. Um, I personally think that maybe just standing erect and drop, holding your um, arm down the side rather than bending over to your knee would be a better option. So maybe, it's almost like placing now, isn't it? You're almost placing from your knee, you're almost placing it. Yeah, so the interesting thing about that is when, we, when they did the proposal changes, we were going to have to drop the ball at, from any height. So you could have dropped it from two inches below the, above the ground. And then at the last minute, the, literally in the December before the release in the January, they changed that um, because I guess that would be too close to placing. So... Mm. So, um, yeah, so, but, um, so the dropping was awkward, but I do understand that you're trying to keep it in a relief area. Um, mm. My other thing and is, I think that, yeah, sorry. The only other thing I think is that the, the three minute ball search is so fast, you know, um, it really is. Maybe they need to go four. <laughs> yeah, <in laughs> but, but also, I think they've, they've taken away the intricacy of uh, uh, yellow and red stakes. I think yellow and red stakes. 
obviously it was complicated, but it, it had a playability impact, doesn't it? Huge, actually. Yeah, I think it, yeah, it does. I mean, obviously you got, you still got red and yellow stakes um, as an option, like TPC Sawgrass 17, it's still yellow. Uh, you don't want that, or Leopard Creek number 18, you don't want an island style green where you hit it onto the green, it rolls off the back and then you drop it green side. Because if you took TPC 17 and you had that, it would ruin the hole. You know, the guys mm. would just hit it, uh, went in the water, drop it two club lengths, and you could uh, you could still knock it in the hole for a for a three. So so there are still the yellow options, but the the default is switched around from being yellow to being red. Um, oh, okay, I didn't know that. I thought I thought it had all gone to to penalty areas. No, so you still got a red penalty area, yellow penalty area. Um, oh. Yeah, you, yeah, um, <laughs> but uh, but you've taken away the either the either side option for the red penalty area unless you put a local rule in. Um, so that's an, another interesting thing that you don't have that either side. You need that equilateral option in a in a red penalty area anymore unless you put a local rule. So at at Silver Lakes, for example, where you've got double fairways with a penalty area in the middle, um, it might be worthwhile having a look at at giving an option on that hole to to drop equilaterally where in the old rules it was built into the rule and mm. now it has to be a local rule. So. Okay. All right, well, we can talk about the rules all day. Um, and it's the idea of getting you on, but time, time ticks by. But I want to just move on to, obviously you went through the playing and then you dabbled in the teaching and, and you found uh, the rules uh, and being part of a, a large uh, established association. So your journey uh, was not directed in one direction in the in the first place, and that's what I want to try and get across here. Is that if you enter African Turf Academy or another or the golf industry or whatever, you don't have to stick to one industry. The, the golf industry is so broad that there's so many opportunities, and you can hear the passion coming out of your uh, from what you do now, and it's great. Uh, and it's the same with the other guys I've had on. So it's just a, a great example of. Keeping your eye out for what really fits your personality and your and your to help you stay in the industry, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I think I mean for me, my life experience is that I played golf, and while I was playing golf, I did a BCom, and when I stopped playing golf, luckily I had a BCom because I was able to go teaching career where you needed either a four-year degree or a teacher's diploma. So luckily I was able to do that, and the same thing when I came back to South Africa, I could teach without a higher diploma in education because I had a higher degree than that. And when mm -hmm. I, I remember clearly when I went to, to Korea, when I, I taught English for my first year, and then I taught, um, and then I went to an international school my next two years, and I taught math, science, and computers at an international school. Um, so, because the teaching English was li literally a dog's job. You know, you worked until 9.30, 10 o'clock every night, six days a week. Um, but uh, when I went for that interview and I walked out of the interview and they told me that I had the job, I remember walking down the street uh, back to the subway station and just realizing that all the things that I had done in my life had kind of added up to me getting this job. You know, the studying, the, teach, the, the teaching Sunday school and enjoying working with kids. Um, you know, the, the hard work ethic that you work at, that you get as being a tour pro or most tour pros or maybe not most some tour pros, that, that all of the, the things that I had done had qualified me for being able to go into that interview and get that job. 
And I think mm -hmm. that's life. If you keep on adding to yourself, whether it's a rules seminar, greenkeepers course, playing the game of golf, um, doing a um, Microsoft um, driver's mm -hmm. license, learning all those packages, it doesn't matter. You keep on adding on top of onto yourself. You'll eventually find where you slot in. You know. Mm -hmm. So for me. I enjoy running golf tournaments, but it's not my passion. I enjoy teaching, and I enjoy teaching, and now I'm teaching the rules. That's probably my, the, the part I enjoy the most about my job, actually teaching mm. the rules. Being a rules official is long hours, and you don't do many rulings. Um, but, mm. you know, so I've kind of, yeah, so, so just keep that's, adding. Yeah. Keep that, on that, that, of yourself for skills-wise, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the was the second last question I have for you. You've answered it now, but it's the advice you would give to the students entering the industry. And what you're saying there is study and keep studying and keep adding and keep keep keeping your options open and keep following uh, the channels that it can take you, and you'll find your sweet spot eventually. Yeah, it's like the rules. I mean, I do. I've been doing some webinars um, which are open to anybody, um, and even if it's just an hour and a half. Uh, of learning the rules and, and getting a little feel for the rules and then getting yourself a rule book and reading it. Like you, we've spoken about, knowing the rules helps you to set up your golf course, um, whether it's defining penalty areas or knowing where to stake mm. your penalty areas. So where can they find you on webinar? Where can the people watching or listening to this afterwards find your webinars? Um, I will pop you a mail if you want and then you can send it out to whoever. Uh, I don't know how else to really do it with the link for the Zoom call. I'm doing yeah. a tournament conditions and a and course setup one on uh, Friday at two o'clock. It's a run about two hours this Friday. Okay. Yeah, send me a link and I'll post it on our social media because there's some yeah. guys. And then I'll mm -hmm. add I'll add you to to my um, to my mail. Um, what's the word? <laughs> Recipients um, for the yeah. ones that, that come up. And if you want to just forward it on. Yeah, they're free and you just got to log on and spend two hours listening to my voice. And hopefully I'm not coughing too much. <laughs> <laughs> and Jennifer Yaga, Jager, do you know her? I'm not, yeah, I'm not great. Oh, that's uh, Dylan Fratelli's mom. Hi, Jen. <laughs> okay. okay. So too many South African pros hit thousands of balls each day and leave high school. Yeah, that's true. So the tertiary education, critical, uh, keeping your options open going forward in your career, critical. You know, so many players today don't even uh, go to high school. <laughs> no, no. So, um, and it's look, so difficult to make it as a player. Uh, I don't think people really understand. I, I, I know I've taken the, I, one of the, the things I do in my job is I get to take the, our squad over to the UK every year for well, most years to the British Amateur and maybe one or two other tournaments. And, and I try to relay stories about how, it is, how hard it is to make it on tour. I'll tell a story. We went to play Royal uh, Dublin last year. I used borrowed clubs. And I told the boys no, the year before, actually, I had Jaden Shape in my group, Vilk, who wasn't there, a couple of other guys. And we went and played, and I said, listen, if I beat any of you guys with borrowed clubs, I'm sending you guys home, as a joke. And I shot one under par around Royal Dublin. First time I seen it with borrowed clubs, and, I, and only one of the boys beat me. So I said, like, okay, so a couple of days later, we went to play Port Monarch. because if I beat you today, two days in a row, you're going home, you know? And, so, and to try and explain to the guys, I haven't been on tour for 19 years. I'm using borrowed clubs, and, and you're able to put a score on the board. It's not that I couldn't play the game. You have to be so, so good. 
to make mm-hmm. it out there. It's not whether you can play the game. You just got to be that cut above. And if you're not the cut above, then um, and I don't know how to explain that. Like you, you can, you know, you can walk onto the range and watch Jaden hit a ball, watch Wilke hit a ball, or watch Brandon Stone hit a ball, and just watch and go, that guy can play. And then you watch another guy on the range go, uh, no, and might make the same sound. There's just something different um, about it. How they carry themselves, you know, that there's a confidence. And whether they whether they enjoy the life, whether they enjoy the traveling lives, the loneliness, the Mm. Independency, the getting on aeroplanes in hotels—it's all sorts of. There's so many aspects to it. So don't. Uh, I've known lots of players over the years who have been amazing golfers, but didn't enjoy the life. And some guys yeah. who haven't, haven't been so good who love the life and and managed to improve. Anyway, yeah. so um, thanks for your time, Neil. Uh, Jennifer, Jennifer saying that no amateur golfer should be allowed to enter an amateur event without being at school. But a lot of guys these days say homeschooling, don't they? Homeschooling. Yeah, look, uh, we, we've discussed that, that point and um, yeah, we, we, you can't deny somebody to play a game of golf if they, or tournament golf. So um, that's yeah, their yeah. choice at the end of the day. You, know? you tell a yeah. parent that his kid can't play a tournament because he doesn't go to school. Um, mm. you, you know? But, it, but uh, in an ideal world, maybe, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. But education is important. Um, all right, Neil, thank you very much for your time. It's been brilliant. Um, had a great yeah. hold of you. What's your? Do you have Twitter handles? Do you have uh, Instagram? Do you have? I'm just uh, Neil Hartman at Facebook. I don't. I had to set up an Instagram account just to do this. So um, mostly just Facebook. Um, yeah. Okay. That's, that's all right. Me. But I'll I'll forward on the um, links to any of your webinars if you can send them to me. Perfect. Great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, that was brilliant. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, what I do is I, I, I record this, I put it on our YouTube, and then I'm going to put it on as a podcast so anyone can listen to it. It's interesting stuff we talk about. Great. Perfect. Thanks, everyone. Right, Thanks a lot for your time. Okay. Cheers. Thank you. Ciao. Bye. Thanks very much for listening today. I hope you really enjoyed the interview. If you need any more information from African Turf Academy, please visit our website, africanturfacademy.com. We have our online platform and our full-time academy based in South Africa. And we really look forward to seeing you in the future.